Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 126 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Bonjour. Ah, very apt, Dylan. Um, we have a big announcement. Andrew, do you want me to share the <laughs> announcement, or do, do you want to share? I don't know if I would typify it as a big announcement, because that sounds like it, well, we've got another podcast coming or something. But go ahead, Andrew. I'm sorry. So the reason Dylan said bonjour <laughs> um, is because I was on vacation in France, and if you can't tell from the sound of my voice... I found out I have COVID in France. Oh, no. So I'm quarantining in a Parisian hotel. And now the whole world knows what disease I have and where I am. Well, to to be fair, you might sound a little different on the podcast. People might have questions. But also, we're sorry, Andrew. Sacre bleu. Yeah. Yeah. I'm recording on an iPad instead of a microphone setup like I normally would because didn't think I would be doing this um, here. These are the lengths we will go to for you, Pejos. Exactly. Andrew is killing himself to get this episode out. The podcast must go on. Yes. Andrew, how are you feeling? You sound bad. Just <laughs> to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think you sound charming and fun. Andrew, I've had to quarantine in a hotel. Dylan has. I don't know about Toby. They won't let me back in France. <laughs> But aside from COVID, which sucks real bad, um, how how was the trip otherwise? Did you get any French shame? (laughs) No, I didn't get any French shame. It was a good trip (laughs) until this whole incident. So that was good. I recommend France. I just don't recommend um, getting sick in general. Mm. Yeah, fair. He's finally come down on, you know, one side of the debate. And we were really in suspense there. I know. I was not on the record on that. Anti-sick. Yeah. Okay. He's made a decision, guys. Count it. Did you have to read Crime and Punishment alone sat in your hotel? Yes or no? Yes. Oh, poor Andrew. Wait, Bailey, what's the French word for shame? I feel like that's going to be a good, fun word. I think it's aunt, but I would have to look it up. Dylan? Looking it up. It's actually haunty. How do you say it? Haunty. How do you spell it? H-O-N-T-E. Uh-huh, what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling haunty. Oh, uh, yeah, so the French word... Haunt. No French shame for Andrew. Toby, do you have any um, American shame or wherever you are? Who even knows? I have no American shame. I have no international shame. I am shameless. I can tell you that the Spanish word for shame is vergüenza. That's a more fun one. Yeah. This is just, you know, the the multilingual side of the to read list. So, you know, enjoy this. Um, (laughs) There's a fun vocabulary word you can call people sinvergüenza, which is basically your like shameless you're shameless and louise and i often like to yell it at each other in the house whenever (laughs) the other person makes a mistake i love it (laughs) (laughs) that's great well i don't have any shame in terms of picking up more books but i have to admit to something guys Uh uh-oh Oh, I, I feel like an this opportunity to say sinvergüenza is coming, <laughs> and I'm so excited. Okay. I might have to accept defeat for the first time in however long this has been a thing, but I don't know that I'm going to finish my Goodreads goal. <gasps> it is December, What is what's today when we're recording? December 11th when we're recording this, and I have 12 books to read. Oh, boy. 
That's a lot you of books. Make it. Time to bust out the graphic novels, baby. I don't know. I don't even know. Even with audiobooks going at the same time and some graphic novels, it's going to be tight. So maybe I should start counting the books I read to Maggie. No, 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 no. Tinkerbell. No, forsake your no. family. Read. <laughs> forsake them. Yeah. Do you know what kind of person would do that? Una sinvergüenza. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dylan, I have to go away. I have to just like read for a while. Sorry. Bye. But you guys have already crushed your goals. Ugh. Uh, I would say mine has been uh, lightly crushed, especially compared to the very intense crushing, like the hydraulic press that Andrew has applied to his Goodreads goal. Toby's been squeezed. Yeah, Toby's is like mm-hmm. a little pulp, some pulp. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, mm, what, what, pulp. what's your status? Well, my goal to get to 100 books has sort of stalled on the vine a little bit. So in that way, I guess I could be ashamed. But I have read 82 books of my 42 book <laughs> Goal. So, yeah. I win. Yeah. <laughs> Two away from doubling. There you go. Oh, I'm going to make that. Yeah. And then Goodreads sends you $100. It's a little known fact. Well, speaking of end of year stuff, I just wanted to prep all the pages that are listening um, and waiting with bated breath. In two weeks on the podcast, it's the last episode of the year. So we are going to be doing our annual bookend awards. Yo. Woot. The celebration and the fear. And the fear. (laughs) Uh, Andrew, do you want to explain the fear? Yeah. So, well, for people who maybe haven't listened to our whole backlog and are sort of new to the podcast, at the end of each year, we have a wrap up episode and award show called The Bookends, which is a great name. It's a great name. And I say because I did not come up with it. I think it was me. Um, I don't think I did either. And yeah. Yeah. I think it was Bailey. Yes. But we, you do a few things where we give some superlatives to our books. We get some summary statistics. And then we play the most terrifying game ever conceived by humankind <laughs> or alien kind, I can only assume, mm-hmm. which is called, correct me if I'm wrong, Russian Readlet. Russian Roulette. Roulette. Yeah. Ah, that's right. That's right. Where basically we each have to wager, not our lives, but the most <laughs> difficult book on our shelves in a game that is pure chance. Uh, and it's facilitated by Dylan, who I think has never been happier than when he is facilitating that game. <laughs> it's my Christmas. <laughs> and um, this is how I've ended up reading Les Mis and Toby read Infinite Jest last year. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I'm generally terrified. Yeah, I have a. Uh, I have selected a, I think... Even more difficult and obscure book to read than Infinite Jest um, for my wager. And uh, you'll have to tune in next episode to find out what it is, Pejos. But it's a it's a doozy. Ooh. Well, get excited. Well, all this talk about books makes me want to talk about more books. Um, Andrew, uh, were you punished in any way by your reading this week? Oh, well, I love doing crimes. I absolutely can't do enough crimes. Um, but... I don't think that this book punished me, but I read a book this week, Ooh. and it's called Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. If you punish, I'll be there. I'll crime with you. Crime after crime. Crime after crime. After crime. <laughs> that was beautiful, guys. I think we have yeah, a career wow. music after this. For sure, keep that one in, whoever's editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I'm sure folks have heard of this book before, but I remember distinctly Bailey read this book very quickly on our couch for summer reading and took very <laughs> elaborate notes. And I wish I had those notes in front of me. Wow. Um, yeah, I had to read this before AP English started senior year, but I, had, I hadn't I had opened it until like the week before school started. So I just sat on the couch and read, read, read <laughs> and had to make a very detailed set of notes in a spiral notebook. Uh, I still have it somewhere. But anyway. Yeah. But um, out of curiosity, did those notes come up in the class at all? 
what happened was the teacher graded them and she graded me like low because she's like, it wasn't, didn't have X, Y, Z. And then I had to go up yeah. and show her and say it does. And she's like, sorry, this was just so long. I couldn't find it. So then I, I did. Well. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember there being something weird about that. Okay. <laughs> you homework so hard that she graded you poorly on your homework. I know. <laughs> um, have you guys read it, Dylan or uh, nope. Toby? Nope. I'll give you a few minutes and you can read it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I will say, Andrew, um, that our mom has read it and she claims to love it. Well, she loves Russian literature, but I was talking about how you had to take it with you to France. And she's like, that's a great vacation book. And I'm like, is it? Maybe it is for our mom. She truly loves Russian literature. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if it would be number one board pick. Anyway, let's get into this nonsense. So Dostoevsky's classic novel, Crime and Punishment, follows dropout student Raskolnikov as he takes a drastic step to improve his lot in life, murdering an old woman for her money. Nice. nice. While the murder is shocking enough, the meat of the story lies in its fallout. Guilt, forgiveness, grace, blackmail, and madness all have a role to play in this intricate explorations of the psyche of a criminal. Mm. Cool. Mm. That's not really a spoiler. Everybody knows about Raskolnikov killing the old woman. It's pretty clear it's happening from the beginning of the book. The title of the book is Crime and Punishment. Deal with it, spoiler. <laughs> not a spoiler. <laughs> the Titanic crashes. And then to give you just like a tiny bit more plot, Raskolnikov commits this crime and then the whole rest of the book is sort of the fallout and the people around him who are either trying to help him, who know, who suspect him, mostly who are like just kind of rooting for him to not be such a weirdo. Um <laughs> But it's all about sort of his inner turmoil following that interaction and those like social niceties and graces of St. Petersburg at the time of the novel. Cool. Cool. So I'll go right into elves and orcs here. Um, some elves. It has really fantastic character building. Dostoevsky takes his time and really like um, draws out the ins and outs of the dudes and dudettes in St. Petersburg. That is a period term, right? Yeah, he kept saying dudes and dudettes, which I thought was weird. Mm. Um, Interesting. It's like you had one of those like teen speak Bibles. But... <laughs> yeah, extreme teen Bible for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was it. Every happy bro is all the same, but every dude suffers in their own way. <laughs> that was very that, good. That is a different it. novel by a different novel. Wrong author, but I still really liked it. Great. <laughs> Sorry, Tolstoy stands out there. Dylan doesn't want to separate you from another <laughs> Russian man. Um, so, some favorites of those characters. We have Mamaladov, who is a, like, well, I wouldn't say unrepentant. He's repentant, but he's a, a hopeless drunk who really just talks off Raskolnikov's ear in a bar one day. He's, I won't say great, but he's really compelling. And he, like, you get his whole life story in a very sort of brief page count. His wife, Katerina Ivanova, also features later in the book. She's strange and compelling in her own right. Razumikin is like um, Raskolnikov's buddy from school. And he's just like this kind of bro who's like, we're, we're going to do all this cool bro stuff. Why are you so worried, bud? What's <laughs> going on, bud? <laughs> Seems like there's something on your mind, like, bud. I have blood on my hands. <laughs> so I really liked him. Um, and then uh, Shrutvigailov, uh, who is this, I don't want to say who he is in the book, because that actually does verge on spoiler. And he's like sort of a major turning point in the second half of the book. He's just a true weirdo <laughs> in a way that I don't know a lot of books just allow a character to be a true weirdo. Nice. <laughs> and so I appreciated that. And so those are just some call outs of some of my favorite characters. The thing behind that is Joseph like really leaves time to hyper, hyper characterize them down to like what they're wearing and then 
Those details don't often feel superlative. They feel like important and instructive. Having read this book literally 20 years ago, I only remember Raskolnikov. And now I'm going to say it wrong. Sverigailov? How do you say it? Something like that? <laughs> I, I, you know what? This is me trying to pronounce a word I saw written. <laughs> you know what? So uh, Same. And I also I remember, yeah. I don't know if this is part of your review, but like as in most Russian novels, they have lots of different names. And so that was part of it, like keeping track of who was who. Yeah. For sure. That's a problem. Honestly, you, you settle into it. It's it's like a learned thing that once you get the rhythm of it, it becomes pretty clear. There's a middle section where you're getting a lot of new characters and then that becomes a problem. But I was expecting it to be more of an issue than it was. Another elf, uh, it takes twists and turns that I was not expecting. So it's both like more surprising and frankly, and this is sort of the best surprise, more spooky Ooh. Ooh. than I Ooh, thought it was spooky. going to be. Huh. There are like some genuinely scary bits at the, at the back half of it that are mm. scary in like a very specific and upsetting way that I was like, I didn't think that this was what this novel was. So that was cool. Wow. Yeah. And then an overall elf, um, the ending, I won't obviously say what it was, but it hit a balance that I wasn't really expecting. And I'll just sort of leave it at that. I think the ending is a particular strength of the book. And I thought I knew what was going to happen and it was not exactly how it played out. Mm. Mystique. Mm. But now let's go down the Nevsky prospect past the Cathedral of Spilled Blood and go to the Orc Town. Um, those are both places in St. Petersburg, everybody. Not Orc Town. Um, <laughs> now that we've gone through all the crimes, let's go through the punishments. Ooh. But here we go. Um, I have one major con here, one major Orc, one Orukai in the center of it all, and that's Raskolnikov. Mm. He's kind of just a wet blanket, <laughs> and he's yeah. confounding. I mean, he's a murderer and whatnot. You're not expecting him to be awesome. But, like, you want to be, like, intrigued enough to be like, oh, I hope he gets away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and for so much of the book, you're just like, all right, dude, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for a murderer, I thought this would be a lot more fun. <laughs> I don't want to get into this too much, but, like, I was expecting to have my heart tugged a little bit more by him. And it wasn't yeah. all the yeah. time. Fair. That's a major factor. But I will say, because there are so many other intriguing side characters, there are stretches of the book where Raskolnikov just doesn't feature. And he's not, like... <laughs> I call this a major orc, but it's not awful. It's just like there are so many other characters. I was like, oh, yeah, Shruti Guy loves back. Oh, Mamalada's back. That's awesome. Oh, there's Kolnikov. <laughs> he's still fine, and he's still good. It's just he's not the, my most favorite. Mm -hmm. Then this is something that happens a lot with books like this, but there's just some time and cultural elements that will sort of grate modern readers. Specifically in the roles of women, though, I think there are like few like clever turns that Dostoevsky tries to do with that, but there's still sort of like a gender hierarchy. And then also specifically about Jewish people, there are a fair number of jibes about that, which just kind of are like, eh, could we translate those out? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> do we need them? And then a final orc. I praised its twists and turns, but I feel like there is a stretch, especially in the middle of the book, where it twists and turns itself so much that it is like, uh, uh, gotta get out of here. And it like over pretzels itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not just me complaining about a classic book being too long. I think it just does like take too many unnecessary like divergences at some certain points. All that said, I really enjoyed reading this book. Maybe I did have to read it in sort of a less than ideal circumstances, but I'm still going to give it four stars. Keep it on my shelf. Nice. As much as it was a terrifying pull from the to read list, I'm glad it was pulled and I'm glad I have now read it. Oh, that's so, great. There you go. Dylan, you're forgiven. That's yeah. the perfect thing. That's yeah. that's what we love. I have no concept of what I rated this in 2003. I'm going to guess 
three stars? I don't know. Um, but I will say one thing <laughs> I remember, aside from the ending and those two characters, is um, the fact that the entire book only takes place over, I think it is, two weeks, which is, is crazy, but it's just you're so in this guy's head. But yeah, the time gets a little squidgy at the end, but like most of it is very, very, very tight. Andrew, did you have an impression like, you know, you, this book got drawn, everyone was like, oh, whoa, is it's very intimidating. Was it as intimidating to actually read as it was to be pulled? No, it was much more intimidating to be pulled than to actually read. Once I settled into reading it, it was actually, it was pretty accessible. Nice. But is it a good vacation read? <laughs> I don't know that it's a great vacation book unless you're our mother. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. I'm not. It joins the ranks of books like Hunchback of Notre Dame and Dracula as being pretty good. Yeah. You might not think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But Toby, do you have any facts on Mr. Dostoevsky? Uh, no, he's a mystery oh, okay. to the world and to history. Yeah, no one knows anything yeah, about him. <laughs> no, um, certainly not way too much information on this man to <laughs> to really <laughs> summarize well, uh, but we'll try. Yeah, I do not begrudge this one. <laughs> um, well, that's why we have this interview from The Guardian with him. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is him at Slate. No. Um, so there's going to be a lot of Russian names and places in here that I'm going to struggle to pronounce correctly. So yeah. I apologize in advance. Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky. He was born on November 11th, 1821 in Moscow. Um, he had a heck of a life, guys, a heck of a life. Um, his father was a retired military surgeon, and he died when uh, Dostoevsky was only 16, uh, leaving the family in quite serious financial distress. Um, he endured quite a lot of poverty as a child, um, which kind of led to his understanding of social dynamics um, and the human condition at a very young age. Um, in 1837, he entered the Military Engineering Institute in St. Petersburg. Heard of it? <laughs> Go Bears, probably? I don't know. Despite doing well at the Institute, um, he eventually chose to abandon his military career and devote himself to reading and writing. Um, he had some initial early success. Um, his initial work was heavily influenced by Romanticism, and his book Poor Folk, published in 1846, was uh, gained attention uh, among the literati uh, of Moscow and St. Petersburg immediately. Then some real bad stuff happened. What? <laughs> in 1849, uh, he and a group of intellectual friends known as the Petroskovy Circle were arrested for subversive activities against the czarist regime. He spent eight months in prison. He faced a mock execution. And Whoa. then after that was sentenced to hard labor in Siberia. So pretty much as bad as it could possibly be besides being actually executed. Why would they? Why? I was going to say, there's one word you could remove <laughs> from that to make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess they really wanted to mess with him. Um, in Siberia, um, he encountered a diverse array of people, criminals, political prisoners, just anyone you can imagine, because holy moly, they were throwing a lot of people into Siberia at that time. Um, it laid the groundwork for a lot of his most renowned books, including Notes from the Underground, published in 1860. Um, and then in 1854, he was released. So he was in there quite a long time. Oh. Um, he had a hard time reintegrating into society. Do you think anyone in his family said like, you see, everything happens for a reason. You got yeah. to go to Siberia and now you have fuel for your book. Yeah. <laughs> so much material for your book. <laughs> yeah. I bet someone did tell him that. <laughs> um, 
Uh, he was released in 1854. Um, he re-entered society. It was a tough transition. And he had a markedly more conservative and religious point of view um, than he had had earlier before he entered Siberia. In the following years, he did a lot of work. In 1859, he published The Village of Stepan Chikovo, which is a satirical novel exploring the follies of human nature. However, he hit it big with Crime and Punishment in 1866. Uh, I would tell you what that's about. But that would be redundant. <laughs> I would like you to tell us what it's about, Toby. Yeah, tell us. A uh, guy, he like smacks down an old lady. I don't know. My extreme teen Bible version. <laughs> <laughs> He's also credited um, with some uh, of, you know, early existentialism with his novel, The Idiot, published in 1869. It's a book about Dylan. Oh! Um, the, novel. <laughs> <laughs> the character of Prince Mishkin serves as a vehicle for Dostoevsky to explore the inherent challenges of maintaining one's virtue in a society plagued by greed and deceit. He published The Devils in 1872, um, which was a scathing critique of the radical ideologies and nihilistic tendencies of the time. He's just kind of cranking out these books at this time. He's at the top of his game. He's a giant in the literary scene. Uh, tragedy struck him in 1867 when his first wife, Maria, died of tuberculosis. He managed to survive that and marry a stenographer named Anna Snitkina the next year. So, you know, he made it through. His wife did not. His, but his wife did not. Um, she's widely credited these days in allowing him to write because uh, despite his massive success, he was plagued by financial troubles uh, because of his ridiculously strong gambling habit. Um, so Anna worked basically to support them both while he alternately wrote books and gambled away their money. Nice. So I guess his gambling habit wasn't that strong. Yeah, though. sounds good. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's also claims that in order to settle gambling debts, uh, he cranked up the pace of his writing. Um, he put out The Gambler in 1867, <laughs> The Eternal Husband in 1869, and then another big one for the history books, The Brothers Karamazov. DNF'd by yours truly. I think it's hilarious, mm -hmm. though, the way you framed that of like, I got to write a book to pay off my gambling debts. Uh, what am I going to call it? Um, the Gambler. <laughs> the <Yeah>. Gambler. <laughs> and he also ripped off Kenny Rogers, which is crazy. <laughs> Nowhere to walk away. <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't heard of it, um, it's about three brothers. They talk about patricide. They talk about the existence of God. It's a long, complicated novel, and it is regarded by some as his best. But since none of us have read both, we can't, uh, as a podcast, certify that for you. Know when to run. <laughs> Dostoevsky passed away on January 28th, 1881, leaving behind a gigantic legacy. He is obviously a name that we all know, but he had a complicated life. And uh, I'm sure that we'll end up reading some more of him on the to-read list eventually. And uh, I can tell you more about him because I'm not going to read more of him. Probably Andrew <laughs> Bailey. Great, great facts there, Toby. And I do want to give a shout out to one of our pages whose dog's name is Fyodor Dogstoyevsky. So oh, that's amazing. That's pretty great. Um, all right. So that is Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Four stars. Mm -hmm. Four stars. Uh, so, Andrew, thank you for that uh, review. Bailey, mm -hmm. do you like Warheads? <laughs> Actually, I don't, but I do like reading books. <laughs> then you, maybe you enjoyed your book this week. Tell us what it was. <laughs> yes, I read the book Sour Heart by Jenny Jang, um, and it is a book of short sour, sour, stories. Sour. Ooh. Mm. Oh, I see why you said Warheads now. I forgot about <laughs> those little guys. There you go. Yeah. 
It was a great transition. Anyway, yeah. continue, Bailey. All right. So Sour Heart is a collection of seven short stories. Each of them follow a girl growing up in New York City in the 1990s. Different girls, I should say. And in each case, the girl was born in Shanghai and then she moved to New York City. She has parents who are problematic. Um, and in almost all the cases, she has a much younger little brother. Um, but they're all different girls. But they're all different, of course. And each time the stories are in first person and the character is, how can I say this? Because she's a girl who's just discovering, like, going through puberty and also discovering, like, cursing, they're pretty crass. There's a lot of um, blue humor. There's a lot of, like, intense sexuality. So that's the case in each of the stories. Are you suggesting that we're going to see the word butts written down if we read this book? Oh, yes. Lots of butts. Lots of butts. Because um, I don't know if I can tolerate that on this <laughs> pod. I will say there are parts that are gross, um, if, if that bothers you, just so you know. So in each case, it's about the same thing. It has sort of the same tone. This is all leading to my very obvious orc, which is that to me... The stories are, I'm sorry to say this, Jenny, like very clearly just her story, just told seven different times with different characters' names. Like sometimes they're named Jenny, sometimes they're named Mandy, sometimes they're named Christy, but like... One time they're named Patankin. There you go. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I just, I would rather it be a novel or a memoir. It's like... Why are you pretending to be something that you're not? That's what I feel. Um, anywho, these are the things I liked about it. This is going to be a very disjointed review because it's kind <laughs> of a hard book to summarize. The seven stories, I wish I could say like this one's about this, this one's about this, but they're all kind of about those same things. Um, my favorite story was called Why Are They Throwing Brick? Um, which focuses, again, on the same character, but a lot on her grandmother who moves over from China um, and just comes and visits and then goes back and comes and visits and goes back. And the different trips hit at different points in this girl's life. And you see her different perspectives on her grandmother changing. And I just thought it was very interesting. I did appreciate um, the point of view of this immigrant girl growing up in New York City. In most cases, the character is extremely poor. Um, Her parents are um, trying really hard to support her while at the same time having their own foibles, also dealing with, you know, the cultural revolution in China and how that affected them. So that was a point of view I hadn't read much before this book, but by the end of the book, I had read that point of view seven different times. Um, Wow. um, The stories are interconnected. Sometimes the girls will sort of know each other and reference each other. Um, And the first story follows a girl, Christina, who then you see in the last story at a later point in her life. I just keep thinking of the uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi meme of, of course I know him, he's me. He's me, yeah. Um, (laughs) I also liked, you know, there's a lot of references to this idea of sour, sour heart. Sour heart is a nickname um, Christina's parents give her because she likes sour food and also it's like you're just a sour person you're not a sweet person but it's a term of endearment um, I liked that another way to think about this book the first person who blurbs it is Miranda July and it was published by Lena uh-huh. Dunham so like <laughs> they're hey stay away from my research okay <laughs> hey say no more but you, <laughs> say no more you kind of get an idea of what these stories are going to be like um, there is extreme sexual violence and violence in general and it's like it's so extreme that I'm like this is either true or it feels like exploitive especially there's one story that follows um, like nine-year-olds 
um, involving sexual violence that like is very um, intense. But I will also give you more sense of the stories by giving you a quote. However, it's difficult to give you a quote that is unbeeped because a lot of the stories have curse words. So I'm just going to read you the beginning of this first story, which is called We Love You, Crispina. And you can get a sense right away what this story is like. And if you are interested in this story, you will be interested in the rest of the stories because as someone on Goodreads said, it's just the same story. Okay. That person you? It was not me. Back when my parents and I lived in Bushwick in a building sandwiched between a drug house and another drug house, the only difference being that the dealers in one drug house were also the users and so more unpredictable, and in the other, the dealers were never the users and so more shrewd. Back in those days, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment, so subpar that we woke up with flattened cockroaches in our bedsheets, sometimes three or four stuck on our elbows, and once I found 14 of them pressed to my calves, and there was no beauty in shaking them off, though we strove for grace, swinging our arms in the air as if we were ballerinas. Back then, if one of us had to take a big dump, we would hold it in and run across the street to the bathroom in the Amico station, which was often slippery from the neighborhood hoodlums who used it and sprayed their pee everywhere. And if more than one of us felt the stirring of a major, mm, declaring its intention to see the world beyond our buttholes, then we were in trouble because it meant someone had to use our perpetually clogged toilet, which wasn't capable of handling anything more than mice pellets, and we would have to dip into our supply of old toothbrushes and chopsticks to mash our king-sized mm, into smaller pieces since we were too poor and too too irresponsible back then to afford even a toilet plunger. And though my mom and dad put it on their list of things we need to buy immediately or else we've lost all human dignity, somehow at the end of the month, we'd be $100 short and we couldn't pay the gas bill in full, or we'd owe $20 to a friend here and 10 to a friend there and so on, until it all got so messy that I felt there was no way to really account for our woes, though secretly I blamed myself for instigating all our downward spirals. Like the time I asked my father if he would buy me an ice cream cone with sprinkles, which made me realize I'd been waiting all month to ask, and he felt so sorry for me that he decided to buy not only an ice cream with sprinkles, but a real rhinestone necklace that sure as hell was not on the list of things we need to buy immediately, or else we've just lost all human dignity. I have to stop there. I keep looking for the end of the sentence, but that's two yeah. sentences. As you can tell, she utilizes run-ons a lot. Hey, I like that. You did? Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. If that interests you, then you should read this book, because that's the tone of the stories going forward, and it definitely gives you a perspective of this girl's life. It's interesting, um, but to me, it just got repetitive, and by the end, I thought I would have had some notes for it, so I'm going to give it uh, between two and three. I'll settle on three stars. Three stars. Tres estrellas, sin vergüenza. <laughs> um, but Toby, do you have any facts on Jenny Jang, and is her life like the life described in the book? Yeah, pretty much. Of course I do. I have so many facts. I have all the facts. <laughs> um, Jenny Chang was born in 1983 um, in Shanghai, Ooh. China. She's an American writer, poet, and prolific essayist, and she lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. Heard of it? <laughs> Freaking heard of it. Um, what is interesting is I believe this is her only book of prose fiction, and otherwise she is an essayist and a poet primarily. So yeah. you got the one, Bailey. Good one. <laughs> she has a lot of other writing credits, but we care about this one. Um, and Bailey also mentioned this, but I'll, I'll get even more specific. Uh, Sour Heart was the actual very first acquisition that Lena Dunham made uh, when she created her imprint. I think so. it's um, one of two that Lenny had while it was an imprint. It well, was not a very long lasting imprint. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. More and more research being exposed. Um, 
Um, when she was five, she immigrated to New York City to join her father, who was studying linguistics at New York University, and her mother, who had come to the United States after the Chinese Cultural Revolution. So, sounds somewhat similar to the book. Yeah, very, um, very similar. Uh, her father ended up withdrawing from the PhD program, um, and he began to work as a teacher, and then re-enrolled in school for computer programming, and the family eventually moved to Long Island, where her father ran a computer repair business. All the same, Bailey? Yeah, that's the same <laughs> In 2005, she graduated from Stanford uh, with a BA in Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. And in 2009, she got a Master of Fine Arts in Fiction from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Freaking heard of it. So, <laughs> yeah, that's oh, a big one, folks. You mean the Crosstown Rivals of the St. Petersburg Military Engineering School? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, those football games go Freaking hard. <laughs> Go corn. <laughs> you know, those are the biographical facts. Uh, and the rest of this is going to be some excerpts from an interview with the Paris Review. And the interviewer is Lauren Kane. So you can tell here we're talking about the Iowa Writers Workshop. We're talking about interviews with the Paris Review. She is flying high. So this interview is with Lauren Kane. Lauren asks, your book of stories, Sour Heart, received a glowing reception in 2017. Was there any temptation to continue writing fiction? Why did you turn back to poetry? And uh, Jenny answers, I did feel like retreating after getting all of that really great positive press for Sour Heart and doing all those interviews and constantly talking about my process and after the fact trying to make a story out of the stories I had written. I felt like every time I sat down to write, I couldn't rid the audience from my mind. As soon as I'm calculating for an audience, I lose interest in writing. It's just another exhausting performance. I wanted to practice writing fiction without any thought of sharing it. When I'm writing, I don't write with the thought that I'm going to share it with the world. Or I prefer not to think that way. As a fanciful seven-year-old, I wrote diaries, and I was sure that someone would break in my home, steal all of my journals, and be so dazzled by this seven-year-old writing in a journal that they would come back and, like, introduce me to their uncle, who would be a sign of the publishing industry. I had those fanciful thoughts and would write diaries with the intention of making that happen. But now I really treasure the feeling of writing without expectation and without the thought that it would reach anyone just to write. Just to, I don't know, process something that maybe is a little bit more unconscious. So... I actually really liked that answer because I don't know. I think I, when I was a kid, I maybe had the same uh, similar imagining. Yeah, no, it's a it's a very relatable sort of thing. I did too, and then I reached the point where I was like, no, no one can ever read this. <laughs> Burn it. <laughs> Lauren asks, you mentioned the childhood diaries, but was writing a part of your adolescence? Being a writer, was that something that you pursued from an early age or did it come to you later? And Jenny answers, I was, for whatever reason, singularly obsessed with writing. I suppose it was because I felt so uncomfortable speaking as a child, partially because I had immigrated here in kindergarten and had to start over language wise. In fact, when I was a really, really small person, I was obsessed with speaking and oral storytelling. I spoke at a very young age and I couldn't stop speaking. For whatever reason, I loved to entertain with my story and would tell them to whoever would listen. I had an identity crisis at the age of five because the thing I loved to do for the first five years of my life, I wasn't able to do anymore. And then by the time I learned to express myself in English, I'd been chastened by the initial stages of trying to speak and people laughing or not understanding what I was saying. So I kind of gave up on speaking for a while. And there was this interim period where I spoke in this glossolalia. Uh, There's a vocabulary word for you. Uh, Because I couldn't speak English and then nobody understood my Chinese. I would just speak gibberish. I would read storybooks out loud. I'd force my glossolalia on the unwitting friends of mine who were like, what are you talking about babbling and sitting here flipping pages of this children's book in front of my face? But I must have, for whatever reason, had a really strong impulse to communicate and tell stories. So once I was able to write in English, that's all I wanted to do. I will give another shout out about the book is that it does deal with learning English, 
learning Chinese, like sort of um, forgetting words in each language. Um, and I thought that was well done. So there you go. There's a connection. Yeah, there you go. Boom. Um, so Bailey mentioned this. Um, Lauren asks, speaking of language, sounds and vibes, let's talk about the way you use vulgarity in your work. And Jenny answers, Yes, it must go back again to a fascination with language and the power we assign to words. I'm always interested in words that create a physical reaction. The first time I heard someone say a curse word and someone else recoiled physically, I just couldn't believe that there was such a thing as a word that could make someone shudder or boil up in rage when previously everything was fine. That felt so absurd. As a child, I was like, how is that possible? That if I say, damn it, someone else is shocked. Uh, Nothing changed about me as a person. I'm still the same person. I just said a word. I think because people also had that reaction to me when I spoke in Chinese or couldn't say a word right. There was this period of time where I was like, what are the right words and what are the wrong words? Um, And we'll have a last answer here. Lauren asks, do you feel your poems, and we'll say poems and writing in general, have a sense of humor? And Jenny answers, I try to. Having a sense of humor is really important to me. I know that some people don't find me funny at all, and that sucks for them. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's wrong to say. I think I have to be on the same level as someone else for humor to happen between us. And I guess I always feel like there's a part of me that's like, come on, come on and just be on my level. You'll find me funny if you can do that. But if you're looking up to me or you're looking down on me, you're not going to find me funny. You're going to find me annoying and gross and stupid and smug and bleep. I don't even know how else to put it because sometimes I'm just like, come and be on my level. Let's laugh. I find a lot of things funny, even terrible things that have happened to me. And maybe that's a coping mechanism. I need to be able to see the absurdity of something terrible. And I also need to make fun of terrible things that have happened to me. I think that's always my impulse. So there you go. Great facts, Toby. And Great facts, Toby. I, maybe my problem was that, you know, I read the book, you know, I binged the book. Maybe if I spaced it out, it'd be like, you know, enjoying eggnog on several days instead of having a lot of eggnog. Yeah, Bailey, get on her level. Bailey, you're not going to get out of our yearly eggnog chugging competition. (laughs) Uh, So that is Sour Heart by Jenny Jang. Three stars. Sorry. Uh, Andrew, do you have a game for us? Oh, step into my puppet master's lair. Yes, I have a game. (laughs) Oh, no. Do we have to do the puppet show for Crime and Punishment? Oh, no. I hate being in the puppet master's lair. Absolutely, you do. All right. So. The name of the game this week is Breaking the Law. Breaking the Law. <gasps> breaking the Law. Breaking the Law. Breaking the Law. Breaking the Law. It's obviously inspired by our friend Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment and the nasty crime that he did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what I have done here is I have six obscure odd laws that are either on the books or recently rescinded from across the world. I... Sourced all of these from a website called Lawyer Portal, which is a fantastic name for a website. Um, The way the game is going to work is I'm going to give you an explanation of the law with something blanked out or form it in the form of a question. You can go for three points by answering without choices, or you can get one point for answering with multiple choice. Okay. So you'll each get three. We have a tiebreaker if it ends tied. Uh, There will be no buzzing in, so no one can cheat with that. And um, who'd like to go first? Me. Bailey would. A nice, unenthusiastic Bailey gets to go first. Keep in mind that you can answer this directly or with choices. Okay. Mm -hmm. In England and Wales, it is illegal to hold what under suspicious circumstances? Hmm. Hmm. Can I ask a clarifying question? Is is it like hold a physical thing or like hold a party? Like, are you trying? No, that's. Uh, I will actually clarify. It is. It is a physical thing, and the choices are all physical things. Uh, okay. If you were to go to choices, it is illegal to hold. Okay, give me choices. Salmon, berries, 
Tylenol. <laughs> I'm going to go with salmon because wow. it's the most hilarious. Yeah. And that would be correct. Yay. One point for Bailey. Nice. The Section 32 of the Salmon Act um, clarifies that it is illegal to hold salmon under suspicious circumstances. The law is sillily phrased, but it makes sense. It basically just means if you think you have fish that was caught illegally, you cannot then sell it on or dispose of it. You need to report it. Mm, okay, well, there you okay. go. Hmm. So one point for Bailey. Yay. Toby, your turn. All right. Oh, I should also say it's punishable by up to two years in prison, which seems like a lot for illegally wow. holding salmon. Human anyway. prison or fish prison? <laughs> Both. This law is no longer on the books. It was updated in 1998. But in Victoria, Australia, it was illegal to change what without a licensed professional? Change what without a licensed professional? I'm going to go for broke and yes. say the oil in your car. You are bold but wrong mm. to do that. <laughs> That's uh, such a long answer, um, <laughs> I thought I had no. I will say one of the choices was a car-related thing, but the answer was a light bulb. What? You needed to have an electri- electrician professional to change a light bulb. I didn't go silly enough. The punishment was a $10 fine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm. Bailey, yes. you lead one to nothing, but there's still plenty of time for it to change. Okay. In Milan, in a law that has never technically been revoked, it's legally required that you blank at all times, except at funerals and hospitals. Ooh, except at funerals and hospitals. You smile, smile. Well, Toby, you're going to have to go for broke because that is correct. Yeah. Oh, no. Yes, yes. Smile. Bailey's up to four points. Yes, in Milan, it's never technically been revoked. It's an old, old law, but it was to keep people cheery. I don't really <laughs> understand it. <laughs> <laughs> so Bailey is leading four to nothing, but there's still time for you to come back, Toby. Okay. In Scotland, you must let anyone blank if they ask. Ooh. I feel like the other question had the context of funerals and hospitals, and this is just, you must let someone I do will, any I will give you the added context. possibly imagine. <laughs> yes, I will give you some added context. Someone can come to your house and ask this. Oh. A stranger could come to you, your house and ask to use... Or do this at your house. Uh, you must let them in out of the rain. Mm-hmm. Is that shelter? Your final Give to shelter. Give shelter. That's a good answer, and it should be on there. But the answer oh. is use your toilet. I was going to guess uh, that. I was oh. going to say that, yep. I have thought about wow. that like in a pinch. Like if I were to knock on someone's door, would yeah. they let me in? I think I have Dang. done that before, but like on Halloween with some added context where like this <laughs> kid's been on walking around for a while. Anywho, Bailey, you're guaranteed to win, but let's see what the final score is. In Samoa, it's illegal to blank. Yep, there is no extra context for this. It, it is illegal to blank in Samoa. Um, is it one word or no? Can you say? Mm, nope. What's up with all these questions? You're ahead four to zero. Uh, get, okay. out, get out of here. It's illegal. Yeah, I was going to add context to it, but you're, you've already guaranteed a win. <laughs> okay, fine. Then I'll just go for broke. In Samoa, it's illegal to wear a tuxedo. Uh. That would be cool. And tuxedo is weirdly close, but it is illegal to forget your wife's birthday. Uh, what? What? <laughs> How is tuxedo weirdly close? <laughs> because the other options I made were both wedding related and my uh. brain is not working very <laughs> yes. well. I like it. Nice. All right. So Bailey got no points. Toby, you can at least make it close and maybe we can throw the tiebreaker question in for some intrigue. Mm. So Toby. Yes. It's illegal in Florida uh, to pass wind 
to use an indelicate phrase, uh, in public after a certain time on Thursdays. What time is that? Yes, uh, this is a trick question. Nothing is illegal in Florida. (laughs) Final answer. Also 4 (laughs) p.m. That's pretty close. The answer is 6 p.m. I did not find context as to why, um, but I'm sorry, Toby, you have zero points. Uh. I win. I can do whatever I want legally. Nice. (laughs) Well, that was a fun game. I win. I can now break the law. Break the law. Break the law. Um, Speaking of fun things, (laughs) Dylan. Oh, no. It's time for you to have some fun. It's time for you to choose books at random from our shelf to read next. What will be our first book for 2024 in The Choosening? The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. You're absolutely wrong, Bailey. We've already chosen the first book of 2024. It's my book in the miso soup. Well, but mine has not been chosen. It's all about me. Well, it's up to Andrews because, I don't know, he's been reading a lot of stuff about morally shifty characters that tend to lie and deceive a lot, when all I want him to do is number 57, Stay True by Hua Su. Oh, nice. Okay, I'm really excited to read this book. So this is a book that I think came out this year, and I think was also, we talked about it, but I think was on the Goodreads. Uh, it won the Pulitzer for memoir, I believe. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think cool. it was probably on the Goodreads list as well. And Huasu is a was a professor at Vassar while I was there. I didn't take any of his classes, but I saw this book when it came out, immediately bought a copy, and I've just been waiting for Dylan to get off his butt and pull it off the choosing list. Well, so hey. <laughs> well, I hear great <laughs> things about it. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear what you think. Well, Bailey. Yeah, yes. me too. I know that you're worried, too, that it seems like everyone's breathing down your neck to choose your first book yeah. and everything, and that sometimes it feels like it's you against everybody, or it feels like number 118, The Wings vs. the World by Jay Chang. Okay, great. Ooh. Um, mm. This, I believe, is also about um, immigrant family, um, and <laughs> but I think it's funnier, so oh, yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Have you read it? Yeah, yeah, I read this book. It's real good. Oh, I'm excited. Okay, I mean, cool. Is it really good? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so that means unless thwarted, unless. unless thwarted by the bookends. So the first books of 2024 will be In the Miso Soup by Ria Murakami and The Wangs vs. the World by Jade Chang. Nice. And in two weeks will be the bookend awards. So tune in for that. Mm. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you want to help us out, a great way to do that is to go on your podcatcher of choice after you've finished killing an old woman for her money (laughs) um, and rate us five stars and leave us a review. Um, And you can confess in your review or or whatnot, whatever you want to do. But the important thing is you leave a review. It does boost our visibility and help more people find our podcast. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you've been uh, spending a lot of time with your friends in Siberia without much to do, you can tell them to uh, listen to our podcast. Podcast, recommend it to a friend because uh, word of mouth is the best advertising we'll ever get or probably ever be able to afford. So please tell your friends <laughs> about this podcast. Um, and we really appreciate it. Bailey keeps gambling all our production money away. Sorry. Got to write a book real quick. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books, books. books.